Well, I find actually that my paper, is, in many ways, is a kind of bouncing off many of the things that have been said earlier today. Certainly, there's a, um, something bounces off what Sai had to say. Something bounces off what Keith had to say, what Kevin had to say, what Andy has to say. But I'm taking as my um, uh, my text, as if it were a sermon here, uh, uh, a book by Walter Badgett. And I suspect that my title, The, the Age of Discussion, uh, may be a little enigmatic. And if, if, if uh, I expect uh, Ken to say something about that, if he was puzzled by the pillars of liberty, then he's going to wonder what, how the age of discussion fits into the, the pillars <laughs> of liberty. Uh, uh, when Michael and I were talking about this conference, uh, you know, we knew right away that we wanted to have certain things um, included. We, you know, we, we, we knew that uh, um, Hayek provided a sort of admonitory roadmap to a town called Serfdom, and it was pretty clear that if you were going to get out of that town, we needed to have something about the free market and why, why that was a good thing, and uh, we, we knew that you needed to rely on local initiative, not big government schemes, and that a free market and not central planning was going to be your most profitable ticket home. And similarly for the other subjects we've talked about today, a free press, as Keith has shown, uh, uh, is surely a pillar of liberty. Um, uh, it's the same with a robust military subject to civilian control, uh, as I suggested in some of his reflections. Um, so many things I think we take for granted, uh, but that are, uh, amazingly now, they seem somehow subject to fundamental renegotiations, things that we used to sort of just you know, assume. Now they, they don't seem quite so certain. Um, uh, you know, Andy talked about the difference between the rule of law, which is a good thing, and rule by lawyers, which is a bad thing. Um, but I think we, we used to be, as, as recently as uh, some of the men that Sai was talking about, we could assume that uh, our society in Britain and in the United States, that uh, there were manly virtues, if I could still use uh, that unfashionable word. And that was a manly patriotism. I guess that's two unfashionable words. I mean, when, have you, when was the last time you heard someone describe something or someone as manly straight without ironical quotation marks? When was the last time you heard someone talk about uh, someone being patriotic and, uh, and using it yeah. straight? You know, it's a long, a long time ago, I think. But I think that our discussions today uh, has demonstrated that all of these institutions of, of liberty are uh, inarguably pillars of liberty, or rather that, not inarguably, but arguably pillars of liberty. Um, what I mean is that we haven't provided proofs of anything. It's curious to me that one thing that's kind of come up again and again is that uh, when Sai was talking about this hinterland, he didn't quite know what the word was between a certain kind of intellectual prowess and character. We, uh, uh, um, and Andrew's uh, talking about the difference between uh, treachery and, you know, um, uh, you know, going against uh, uh, your country in a way that was actually, in, in a deeper sense, patriotic. But many things we we don't quite have the um, vocabulary for uh, defining, but we sort of know what we mean, and we what we have are sort of rhetorical pointers. 
looking back to a shared history and forward to a shared, if multifaceted, vision of the future of what Aristotle called the, the good life for man. And um, uh, it seems to me that that very process of talking about it uh, is a pillar of, of liberty. And what we've been engaged in is uh, um, what, what Badgett called uh, discussion, untrammeled free discussion about the way the world works and our proper place in it. Uh, now, those of you who are students of, of Walter Badgett uh, will know that I take the title of my paper, The Age of Discussion, from uh, a chapter in his neglected masterpiece of 1872, Physics and Politics, an odd title for, the, for a book, um, or to give it its full title, which is even odder, Physics and Politics, Thoughts on the Application of the Principles of Natural Selection and Inheritance to Political Society. So an element of evolution here. Now, by physics, Badgett didn't mean physics the way we think of it. It's not, you know, not in the technical sense, but something closer to what the Germans mean by Wissenschaft, science in a very broad sense, inquiry in a, a very broad sense. And similarly, uh, evolution. He didn't mean by what Darwin meant exactly, but he was, he, he was picking up on something that was in the air. He was a kind of tuning fork, a rhetorical tuning fork for uh, these ideas of, of evolution and a descent with modification that um, had been in the air long before Darwin wrote uh, the origin of, published The Origin of Species on, in 1859. But uh, he uses it, as he says, Merely as a kind of uh, uh, a kind of analogy, sort of drawing out uh, an analogy. Um, it was it was uh, something that was uh, many people were writing about at the time. I think Badgett was the first person really to draw the connection between uh, this observation that people had made that um, descendants were similar to the parent stock, but they always, also always differed. And he was trying to think about well, how does this apply to the evolution, in some metaphorical sense, of societies, of civilization. How do we get from the rude beginnings to where we are now? And that's, that's really um, the, the, uh, the, the point of this, of this book. Um, at the center of physics and politics is uh, an inquiry into what Badgett calls the political prerequisites of progress and especially of early progress. He wants to know how uh, it all got started. And he means, not, he means partly advancement in knowledge and technical know-how, but also advancement in the institutions of liberty. Um, and accordingly, a lot of physics and politics is concerned with beginnings, with the slow, hard first chapters of civilization. It's, I think it's difficult for us being the fruits of so much progress, uh, beneficiaries of many centuries of political ingenuity, to imagine with what difficulty a polity of any sort was forged and maintained. And the first several chapters of Physics and Politics are uh, reminders of this difficult uh, early time. Um, Badgett writes that the, at, at the beginning, the quantity of government is much more important than the quality of government. What you want, he says, is a comprehensive rule binding men together. What this rule is does not matter so much. A good rule is better than a bad one, but any rule is better than none. How to get the obedience of men is the hard problem 
what you do without obedience is less critical. Now, uh, I think for us today, we, we, and that would be horrible to us. We want a good rule or, 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 or no rule because we have been uh, softened by centuries and centuries of progress. But this first step, the inaugurating of law, custom, habit, is the hardest step to make. But history proper, Nadja thinks, begins with the next step. Uh, what is most evident is not the difficulty of getting fixed law, but getting out of a fixed law. Not of cementing what he calls a cake of custom, but of breaking the cake of custom. Not of making the first preservative habit, but of breaking through it and reaching to something better. In his second chapter, The Uses of Conflict, he sums up the strict dilemma of early society. Either man had no law at all and lived in confused tribes, hardly hanging together, or they had to obtain a fixed law by processes of incredible difficulty. Those who surmounted that difficulty soon destroyed all those that lay in their way uh, who did not. And then they themselves were caught in their own yoke. The customary discipline, which could only be imposed on any early men by terrible sanctions, continued with those sanctions and killed out uh, of the whole of society the propensities to variation, which are the principles of progress. So you have this very strange situation where uh, um, uh, this application of the customary made it very difficult for there to be much variation early on. Badgett traces the vicissitudes of this dialectic between stasis and innovation through various stages from the preliminary age, that is the rude time of prehistory, when, as he says, the strongest killed out the weakest as they could, to modern times and the age of discussion. Along the way, he has many politically incorrect things to say about the civilizing, or at least order-inducing, effects of violence and the hard road any population faces in forging a national identity. The perennial problem and the admonitory theme of physics and politics is that man, the strongest and smartest of animals, was obliged to be his own domesticator. He had to tame himself. Consequently, Badgett says in an observation that ought to make us pause and think, and uh, this is one thing I think that, uh, that Sy's remarks uh, also made me think about, is that history is strewn with the wrecks of nations which have gained a little progressiveness at the cost of a good deal of hard manliness and have thus prepared themselves for destruction as soon as the movements of the world gave a chance for it. As Kipling put it in his great poem, The Gods of the Copybook Headings, they promised perpetual peace, they swore if we gave them our weapons that the wars of the tribes would cease. But when we disarmed, they sold us and delivered us bound to our foe, and the gods of the copybook heading said, stick to the devil, you know. Now, Badgett is a, a mild and companionable writer, but as his observations about the perils of progressivism suggest, there's a great deal in physics and politics to shock readers, uh, especially those who are inclined to a pacific view of human development or a politically correct understanding of life. Let us consider, he writes in a famous, an infamous passage, uh, in what sense a village of English colonists is superior to a tribe of Australian natives who roam about them. Indisputably in one, 
in that a main sense they are superior. They can beat the Australians in war when they like. They can take from them anything they like and kill any of them they choose. As a rule, in all the outlying and uncontested districts of the world, the aboriginal native lies at the mercy of the intruding European. Nor is this all. Indisputably, the English village, in the English village, there are more means of happiness, a greater accumulation of the instruments of enjoyment than in the Australian tribe. The English have all manner of books, utensils, and machines, which the others do not, uh, which the others do not use, value, or understand. And in addition, there is a general strength which is capable of being used in conquering a thousand difficulties and is an abiding source of happiness. Now, in fact, the importance of military prowess in binding a population into a society is a leitmotif in physics and politics. Badgett notes that the progress of the military art is the most conspicuous, I was about to say the most showy fact in human history. All through the earliest times, he writes, martial merit is a token of real merit. The nation that wins is the nation that ought to win. The simple virtues of such ages mostly make a man a soldier if they make him anything at all. No doubt the brute force of number may be too potent even then, as so often it is afterwards. Civilization may be thrown back by the conquest of many rude men over a few less rude men. But the first elements of civilization are great military advantages. And roughly, it is the rule of the first times that you can infer merit from conquest and that progress is promoted by the competitive examination of constant war. Badgett was undeceived about the exigencies that face a nation at war. So long as war is the main business of nations, temporary despotism, despotism during the campaign, is indispensable. The point is, Badgett argues, that war both needs and generates certain virtues, not the highest virtues, but what may be called preliminary virtues, as valor, veracity, the spirit of obedience, the habit of discipline. That's to say, war and the martial virtues it requires make certain valuable things possible, including civilization itself. Civilization, Badgett writes, because the beginning of civilization is a military advantage, an unflattering thought, uh, sorry, sorry, civilization begins, Badgett writes, because the beginning of civilization is a military advantage, an unflattering thought that many will find shocking, I think, today. Even more shocking is the similar argument that Badgett makes regarding slavery. Slavery, too, he writes, has a bad name in the later world, and very justly. We connect it with gangs and chains, with laws which kept men ignorant, <coughs> ignorant with laws that hinder families, but the evils which we have endured from slavery in recent ages must not blind us to or make us forget the great services that slavery rendered in earlier ages. Refinement is only possible when leisure is possible and slavery first makes it possible. I think that maybe the only thing more difficult than accepting that uh, contention is coming up with convincing arguments against it. Above all, Badgett was writing against the old idea, which still here creeps out in conversation, and sometimes in writing, that politics are simply a subdivision of immutable ethics, that there are certain rights of men in all places, in all times, 
which are the sole and sufficient foundation of all government, and that accordingly a single stereotype government is to make the tour of the world. And you have no more right to deprive <coughs> Dyak of his vote in a possible Polynesian parliament than you have to steal his map. The idea that uh, one form of uh, liberal democracy, for example, uh, uh, sh should um, occupy the world and should have occupied the world throughout history. Now, the difficult insight that Badgett is everywhere at pains to communicate is that not all things are possible at all times and in all places. If political liberty is a precious possession, and he thinks it is, it is nonetheless forged in a long and painful development of civilization, much of which is distinctly and necessarily illiberal. Hence the advantage of binocular vision, which Badgett possessed in uh, great abundance, which allowed him, when he was covering the uh, coup of Louis Napoleon, to risk his life helping the Republicans build barricades. <coughs> He could at the same time extol Napoleon's coup and uh, work for the other side, as it were. Now, this was not, I think, a, an expression of irony or inconsistency on Badgett's part. It was an expression of political realism. As he put it elsewhere, the Second Empire was an admirable government uh, for present and coarse purposes, but a detestable one for future and refined purposes. One can help prepare for the future, finding on the barricades, but one must live in the present and uh, understand the virtues that the present uh, affords. Now, all these, uh, what we might call these hard observations, const constitute the strophe of Badge's argument, the antistrophe, the opposite movement, the movement toward which physics and politics as a whole tends, is that the whole history of civilization is strewn with creeds and institutions which were once invaluable and later become deadly. Slavery is one such institution. And ultimately, he suggests, the widespread dis dissemination of the martial sensibility may be as well. I'd be interested to know what Sai had to say about that. Uh, Badgett had some equally piquant observations about the moral limitations of unbridled, the unbridled philo philanthropic impulse. The most melancholy of human reflections, he writes, is that on the whole, it is a question of whether the benevolence of mankind does more good or harm. Great good, no doubt, philanthropy does, but it also does great evil. It augments so much vice, it multiplies so much suffering, it brings to life such great populations to suffer and be vicious that it is open to argument whether it be or not be an argument, in the, uh, an evil in the world. And this is entirely because excellent people fancy they can do much by rapid action and that they will most benefit the world when they most relieve their own feelings. I think there are two things to, to note about this passage. One is Badgett's observation about these excellent people who believe, mistakenly, that they benefit the world most when they flatter their own feelings of virtue. That's been uh, something I think that's come up a few times today. How much pain and misery this spirit of do-goodism has spread throughout the world? And Badgett's second uh, point, an important theme uh, throughout Badgett's writings, concerns the advantages of what he calls slow government. It was the American socialist Norman Thomas, I, I think it was he, anyway, who, who defined communism as democracy in a hurry. 
Uh, communism's velocity, Thomas thought, was a major part of what recommended it. Why do we need to kind of uh, hang back? We, we know uh, where uh, you know, the future of the brotherhood of man uh, lies. Let's do it and do it now. Uh, Badger disagreed with this profoundly. The essence of civilization, he wrote in an essay on Matthew Arnold, is dullness. In an ultimate analysis, it is only an elaborate invention invention for abolishing the fierce passions, the unchastened enjoyments, the awakening dangers, the desperate conflicts, the excitements of a barbarous age, and to substitute for them indoor pleasures, placid feelings, and rational amusements. That a grown man should be found to write reviews is in itself a striking fact. Suppose you asked Achilles to do such a thing. Do you imagine he would consent? (laughs) Now, Badger's point was that in advanced civilizations, deliberateness and circumspection, adherence to process, are virtues that save us from the myopia of impulsiveness. They wouldn't have worked in earlier times, but uh, as civilization progresses, uh, they become uh, more and more important. Now, I say that he's, he's, I hasten to add that he's not advocating quietism or inaction. If the English had mastered the art of slow, deliberate government, that mastery did not hinder their energetic pursuit of their own interests. The achievement was moderation, yes, but what Badger called animated moderation. Moderation chastened by deliberateness, but also unwritten by energy. When we have a definite end in view, he writes, we can act well enough. The campaigns of our soldiers are as energetic as any campaigns ever were. The speculations of our merchants have greater promptitude, greater audacity, and greater vigor than any such speculations ever had before. But all that action takes place in a framework of circumspection. Badgett's insight is something that Dan Hannon uh, echoed last night and that in his recent book, The New Road to Serfdom, uh, he expatiates on. Remember when Rahm Emanuel, at the beginning of the economic crisis, when he was still Obama's chief of staff, gleefully said that you never want to let a serious crisis go to waste. (laughs) What he meant was that a crisis makes people anxious and vulnerable, and that it is easier in periods of crisis to exploit that vulnerability and push through initiatives to enlarge government and usurp freedom. Which is why in periods of crisis, one should, if one is prudent, exercise double diligence about acting hastily. Most disastrous policies, Dan observed, have been introduced at times of emergency. How often have you heard a politician or a government bureaucrat say, doing nothing is not an option? In fact, I think Dan is right when he says that doing nothing is always an option, and in fact, it's often the best option. This is something that Calvin Coolidge, my, currently my favorite president, <laughs> when he said to some busybody aide, don't just do something, stand there. <laughs> Badger would have liked Coolidge, I think. Um, uh, Badger was born into a, a banking family, and it is said that when he was anxious, he would steal down from his apartments above the bank and run his hands through piles of gold sovereigns. <laughs> he found the contact soothing, and he would, I think, have approved of Calvin Coolidge's habits of fiscal restraint as well as his wary view of hyperactive government. Badger's contention is that, for us, progress in civilization is measured by increasing deliberateness. 
parliamentary government is valuable not only because it facilitates action, but also, and increasingly, because it retards it. If you want to stop instant and immediate action, he advises, always make it a condition that the action shall not begin until a considerable number of persons have talked it over and have agreed on it. If those persons be people of different temperaments and different ideas and different educations, you have an almost infallible security that nothing, or almost nothing, will be done with excessive rapidity. (laughs) The habit of discussion is the handmaiden of this process. In this sense, the spirit of free discussion is not only a condition of scientific inquiry, it is also an adjunct to the virtue of tolerance and a guarantor of intellectual freedom. Bertrand Russell once made the sad observation that people only agree about what they're not really very interested in. But I think that what uh, that what that really meant is that Bertrand Russell couldn't really agree about anything that interested him. Some favored nations, preeminently perhaps some nations that are part of the Anglosphere, have a more beneficent experience of discussion. A look at our history and the history of, of, uh, of the UK uh, show that Badgett was right. If we ask what's nurtured liberty, where it has prospered, and what has denied it, where it has failed to prosper, a large part of the answer is talk. Not idle chatter, but rather a situation in which government was to a great and a growing extent government by discussion and where the subject of that discussion were in some degree abstract, or as we would say, about matters of principle. A free state, a state with liberty, means a state in which the sovereign power is divided among many persons, and in which there is discussion among those persons about these important matters. Now, there are two sides to to Badger's argument in physics and politics. One is celebratory. The story of civilization, civilization's rise is a success story, after all. We've, uh, we've come a long way. And it's all the more bracing and dramatic because the road has been hard. Progress has been slow. Uh, there are many failures a- along the way. At last, though, liberty undergirt by that slow government of discussion won out in lucky places like the UK, the United States, and, and a few other places. That is not the end of the story, however. For as Badgett notes, if government by discussion is a principal organ for improving mankind, it is also a plant of singular delicacy. So the question is, how best to nurture this delicate plant? And that is Badgett's final problem. And it's also, I think, in a way, uh, an organizing problem of of our whole discussion today. How do we, excuse me, How do we uh, nurture this plant of singular delicacy? Now, part of the answer is uh, facing up to the unpalatable realities about power and <clears throat> this hard road uh, that Badgett describes that made civilization possible in the first place. The other part lies in embracing what Badgett called animated moderation that union of life with measure, of spirit with reasonableness, which assures that discussion will continue without descending into violence or anarchy. It seems like a very small thing. I mean, government by discussion, it seems like, well, that's just what we do, isn't it? We forget, I think, uh, how fragile it is. Um, It's kind of a Burkean point uh, that achieved order uh, always seems like just part of our natural inheritance until it is lost. 
And I think as we look around at the many assaults on free discussion today, the prospects for the continuation of our regime of liberty seems up for grabs in a more fundamental way than it has at any time since World War II. As we meet here in, in, uh, in lovely Winchester, the UN is said to be devoting part of its energies to the subject of laws against blasphemy, a subject that the State Department of the United States has refused to dismiss with the contempt that it deserves. Meanwhile, <clears throat> thousands of Muslims ride in cities from Tunis to London because somewhere, someone somewhere has drawn a cartoon or made a video that they do not like. The response of our Secretary of State is to caution against hurting the religious feelings of Muslims, while brown-shirted sheriffs, as we uh, spoke about earlier today, uh, in California conducted midnight raid to bundle one sad sack down to be interviewed by federal agents, and then just yesterday he was arrested. Why? Because he made a video uh, that the President of the United States didn't like. I think Badgett was right. Free discussion is under serious threat today by religious fanatics, overweening government bureaucrats, and a complacent populace. David Hume once observed that it is seldom that liberty of any kind is lost all at once. It seems to me that we have alarm bells going off all around us. And the oddity is that so few people seem to hear them. I hope that our deliberations today can do something to amplify the admonitory toxins. Thanks. Who would like to start this discussion? Okay. Um, a terrific um, uh, paper, and I learned a lot about budget. Um, a quibble about living forged in a painful process passage of civilization. Um, my understanding of liberty is that we drifted into it towards the end of the Middle Ages, and it wasn't very painful. We just sort of discovered it. I mean, Magna Carta is simply a response to the fact that customs had grown up about consultation between the barons and the king. And this damn John wanted to change them, so it was defended. Universities, um, people began asking questions because the coherence of Christian doctrine uh, appeared to be very confused, and so on, steadily, in universities, discussion developed a certain um, impetus of its own. And of course, you know, heresy and the defense of orthodoxy, it's a long story, but nonetheless, this emerged. So what uh, led to the creation of liberty were a series of liberties. That is, a certain, I mean, I had asked about what are the pillars of civilization I now know from as far as what we might conceive of as the pillars of civilization, the materials are individualism. And individualism, that is, a set of people who take their own thoughts and impulses and their enterprises seriously, and a world that develops around this idea. That is how um, freedom developed. And so, you know, this is a this happened in no other civilization. It is uniquely Western, and it gave rise to stuff like the Marxist idea of 
oppressed groups fighting for freedom, and we now know mm. with great confidence that this is, this is the road to serfdom, slavery, and God knows what else. I mean, we drifted into freedom. I don't think it was painful. Occasionally it's painful when power makes a bid to control it, and it has to be defended. I think that happened in the 17th century, and it keeps on happening. Mm. But I don't think the, the construction of freedom was in itself a painful process. Mm. I think it's a, a marvelous accident into which we drifted. Yeah. Oh, no, <clears throat> we've just been watching a, uh, a series by David uh, Starkey on monarchy, and um, uh, uh, there seemed to be a lot of pain around the time of uh, the adoption of Magna Carta. It was not... Um, uh, not, not a painless process, and also the, you know, um, uh, the, the ecclesiastical side of things. Um, I was saying to somebody last night, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition, uh, but uh, if you were too free, free uh, speaking in medieval universities, you probably did. And some, people, some people did, and questions of grammar, for example, which mm. you'd be in big, big, big trouble. Right. Again, the Inquisition, terrible, but I don't mm. think the death rate is the numbers of mm. people killed and for that were not vast, were they? I don't know. But, uh, but, um, oh. but, but freedom comes and goes, and uh, I mean, the Magna Carta was signed after three years of civil war. Then you had um, a, a, a brief period, uh, as you say, where there's an evolutionary advance. But then, with the Wars of the Roses and with the Tudors, you had a form of parliament. It had no powers. It wasn't by Charles I. <coughs> he was able to close it for 11 years and, uh, and rule personally and raise taxes and ship money without um, acts of parliament. So what you do with, with big trouble and in well, the end, and that's the point. It turned out to be a mistake. And it also turned out incredibly violently because you had hundreds of thousands of people dying in the English Civil War when you had a tiny population. So that is violent. Yes. Well, you, know, you can't say that's an evolutionary process. That's a revolutionary process. Oh, well, it's an, it's an evolutionary defence. I mean, they it's a war. So it's a, it's, it's a not, war. It's not a peaceful uh, evolution. It, it, you you have a, you have four or five years of of civil war, and you finally come at the end of that with this. Uh, this is where I think the Whig interpretation of history is right. You you finally come to a to a, a parliament that that dominates the king and chops his head off, and, and this is the beginning of our liberties. Yes, Parliament, um, I mean, Henry, the appalling Henry VIII said that we are never so strong as when we act with Parliament. And, you know, he was an appalling tyrant in many ways. But nonetheless, what he and that whole national sovereignty movement learned was how to repeal laws without just ignoring them. That is, they continued the, 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 the legal structure um, but the Stuarts forgot what the, what the Tudors learned. They so. did indeed, okay. in different circumstances, and the Civil War is appalling, but that's a defense of a freedom that was already significantly in okay. place. I think no, we, we, we may have different thresholds of pain, Kevin. Yes. Thanks for bringing up that. <laughs> an enormous admirer of his, and one of the things I particularly like about that essay is, uh, particularly for libertarian-leaning folks such as myself, the uncomfortable reminder that what you always really have in history is a choice between two possible real-world options and not a choice between what you would really like mm -hmm. and what happened. I remember around the time <coughs> of uh, 
9-11, there was a great deal of renewed interest in the character of Charles Martel and the uh, Battle of Tours. And I was curious about it, and I thought, why isn't he a, you know, a bigger figure in the Catholic Church than he was? I mean, he did save Christendom from the uh, invading Islamic armies, and the reason for that is because well, he was a, a, foe, yeah. well, he was a brigand and, uh, and a guy who seized church lands and was you know, sort of, you know, randomly kill people and that sort of thing. He was just not a nice guy, but, but you're also, he was our guy. But you're glad he was there, right? <laughs> Son of the bitch. And, uh, you know, one of the uh, American founding fathers who shall not be named once observed that if you took uh, any royal family or dynasty back far enough, what you ultimately find is just the chief ruffian of some uh, band of, of robbers. And that's, that's sort of where, uh, you know, sort of where states come from. I think there's a pretty good argument to be made about that in, in almost all the, the ancient European uh, Questions, but there probably wasn't another way. Mm-hmm. Um, we had uh, a better choice than the options that went before. I'm not sure that still constrains what our options are now, and I always resist. There's still a kind of Hobbesian uh, tendency in people's thought where you're either going to get you know, Leviathan with all of his powers and absolute uh, authority or something resembling you know, the state of nature and anarchy. And I think there are actually more choices on the table now. Budget's very useful. It's a marvelous paper. Budget's very useful. He's writing, after all, 140 years ago. He's writing about a society which is urbanized, industrialized, which is a society which is not too different in some respects to ours, which is wrestling with similar problems. How do you adapt to a very large uh, population? How do you adopt whatever you mean by democracy, which is becoming a much more frightening prospect? How do you maintain values in that context? And how do you maintain cultural continuity? And I think actually that those thinkers of the late 19th century are very, very important. I mean, you know, uh, Daniel was talking about Weber earlier. All of these thinkers, they have to have different solutions, and some of them we're more comfortable with than others. But they're all at least addressing an agenda which is not too different to some aspects of our own world. Uh, and that's one of the things I, I admire about Badgett, because he's one of the thinkers from that time who doesn't seem to me totally imprisoned by this sort of Hobbesian model of politics. He started to understand that there's, you know, unpleasant realities about how we got where we are, and unpleasant realities about how we're going to get where we are to where we want to be. But there actually are lots of different possible options other than, you know, the sort of absolute sovereignty versus the jungle. Daniel, yeah, you started with the question: When was manly last mm. sort of used as a, as a term of? approbation as a virtue. Right. Um, leaving, leaving Harvey Mansfield to us. Well, <laughs> I was going to mention good old Harvey Mansfield uh, and that very fine book of his. Um, ironically, I suspect the last politician I can imagine using it was actually a woman, uh, Mrs. Thatcher. Mm-hmm. Um, she certainly had great regard for manly virtues and, and uh, drummed it into the elder George Bush uh, when he was yeah. backsliding well, over right, the rock, right, 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 uh, going a bit wobbly, uh, and and the same uh, the same even I think with Ronald Reagan during during some stages of the Cold War, but um, I, there was a phrase that came up um, that uh, in in the course of your uh, I'm not sure whether you were quoting Badgett or not. The competitive examination of constant war. Mm. I like that phrase. It's Badgett. Uh, and, and it's a significant one because Badgett was writing at the time when competitive examinations had only recently been introduced mm-hmm. in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we now live today, I mean, you know, Socrates talked about the examined life. We all <laughs> take examinations all the time. You know, our children are put through literally hundreds of examinations before they're allowed to do anything at all. And I suppose that has become our equivalent of 
you know, the, 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 the real fighting, the real uh, warlike uh, activities that previously uh, young people had to endure. Um, but uh, is that a good thing? Or is that a good subject? You know, is that really preparing us? Particularly when we're up against enemies of our civilization who do believe in, in real war, you know, mm-hmm. in particular holy war. Yeah. Um, uh, are we prepared or have we gone soft? You know, are we, I mean, we were talking in some of the previous sessions about the, the gradual diminution of, of military prowess, of you know, the fact that most people... I mean, in England, unlike America, you never see anyone wearing a uniform now. It's a really unusual sight, and uh, except possibly outside Buckingham Palace or something. But you know, it's um, when 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 the army was drafted in at the Olympics, and people found themselves having their bags searched by soldiers in uniform. They were delighted. This was a new experience for my children, for example. I know in America, uh, but. It's different, you know, but here soldiers are told not to wear uniform in public. You know, it's considered dangerous and possibly slightly shameful. Mm. So mm. we're losing these provocative. We're, we're losing these martial virtues, and I'm not sure the competitive examinations are a good enough substitute. They aren't the moral equivalent of war, are they? No, it's a, well, I mean, Boundary's remark that you know the, the many civilizations that have uh, you know traded a little bit of. Uh, Progressiveness. Uh, they've, they've sort of advanced that a little bit, and they find themselves disarmed. And you know that was a, it, it, they're kind of subject to the first uh, you know barbarian horde that comes around the corner. And I think that's that's a, an open question. I mean, uh, many people have talked about the feminization of society. Stephen Pinker has a recent book where he thinks we bec- we're less cruel now than we we once were, and this is he thinks this is a, a good thing. There's been a kind of softening of of human nature. I mean, one problem is that um, it's it's not a, a universal process. That we may become softer, but what about um, what, what about uh, um, I don't know the Chinese? Are they softer? Are 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 are, um, are the the the, uh, uh, the the chaps in Afghanistan softer? You know, or the 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 people in Rwanda are they softer? And I mean, we have a, we have enormous technical. <laughs> Advantages now, but um, how long would will that be enough to stave off a determined uh, enemy? You know, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, John, but, excuse me, sorry, but you do. <laughs> John, uh, I'm sure it's actually some of the Muslims yeah. are softer. They just don't know it because they never meet any serious opposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, in the old days, well, we felt pretty confident, didn't we? That you know, a whiff of grape shot and hanging the odd muller would keep them under control. Um, um, good old days. <laughs> But I was just going to say, first of all, you've implanted a, serious, uh, a case of guilt in me because I really haven't read enough about just, just the odd essay. But as you were, um, as you were quoting him and uh, confused, it struck me that I have been reading a lot of Spencer lately. And, um, and they were, weren't they on The Economist together? Yeah, well, he could quote, Spencer's quoted frequently in this yeah, book, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, the, well, the particular point I'm thinking of is that Spencer did believe that, um, that, that society was, uh, could go in one of two directions. It could go either in the martial direction, um, society of orders, instructions, hierarchy, or in the free direction, or industrial direction. He thought martial or industrial societies. And he was pretty confident um, in the 1850s that you know, Britain and advanced countries were going to go away from martial towards industrial societies. And then, of course, 
1884. He is now very gloomy and he lists all of the things that uh, we think of in ancient Asian war as kind of the height of laissez-faire, but he lists page after page of interventionist legislation in a very entertaining way. Um, and I, well, what happened? What has happened to change this? What, what's reversed things? Well, I think one, one case is very illustrative, uh, interesting, and that is um, the Newcastle Commission in, I think it was um, 1858, something like that, discovered that the children of England were being educated in schools, um, mostly private schools, church schools, and so on. What percentage? I'm just curious, round the table, what percentage of the population of poor people, uh, 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 largely poor population, what percentage of children were in these schools? Would anyone like to guess? Remember, there's not, we don't have state education of any serious kind. 90? It's very high, yeah. It's 95.5%. Wow. And why didn't we bring in the Foster Act? Well, because not all the schools were great schools, and um, there were, of course, Dickens had a lot to do with giving the impression that the character of these schools was poor and so on and so forth. And, but, um, and the reason was because essentially the state said, look, you're only educating 95.5% of the population. We've got to educate 100%. We have that obligation. So you essentially embark on uh, a, a series of steps that bring about, uh, and is intended to bring about, an almost total uh, state system. Um, what is the percentage today of children who leave British schools who, um, um, uh, functionally illiterate, can't read, write, or do songs? It's 20%. So, the, in a sense, the state offers the promise of certainty. You know, yes, there are, the charity helps some poor people, but not all. Yes, it educates most children, but not all. We can guarantee it because we have the power of the army behind us, ultimately, the power of taxation. But it doesn't deliver on the promise. Yes, and, and, and that promise, it seems to me, is the thing which changes a free society uh, to one which is increasingly less free, and I don't know, maybe I'll find the answer. Yes, well, I think it's, you know, it's one of the things that's wrong with egalitarianism is that you, know, you have a choice between um, the, uh, if you, in an agonistic culture where people strive to be the best, some will rise to the top, um, but not everybody. And if, um, you know, if you have a, a, a culture that, um, you know, it's, Growing, and the, the, if John Kennedy said, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, but some are going to be uh, higher than others. And what Barack Obama, somebody was earlier today talking about fairness, so maybe it was you, John, and he said, um, you know, he, 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 he made it quite clear that um, he was not interested in tax, the taxing power as a way of generating revenues primarily, he's interested in, in a way of, you know, leveling. And what, what, he, what matters to him and, and to all egalitarians is that, uh, uh, that all the boats be on the same level or as near as you can make it. And so, you know, the, with the children, it's, which, is it better to have 95.5% of, of the four children well-educated or um, um, have, you know, uh, 20% uh, functionally illiterate, but all at least are in the, in the schools? And I, mean, I think, you know, most of us would agree that the former is, is better. We've got Desire, Andrew, and Keith. So. Um, have all of you read the book The Lonely Proud? Yeah. Yes. It's a great classic of uh, civilization. Uh, he talks about interdirected people and other directed people and how people who are uh, <clears throat> interdirected are people who come to life in societies in which virtues like resolution 
imperturbability, allegiance to things you believe in uh, are far more important and they tend to be the, uh, the, conse- the consequence of uh, education that relies heavily on words like inculcation, emulation, those kinds of things. Uh, we don't do that anymore, do we? I, maybe you do in your schools, we don't. Yeah, what, and, we, what we do have is a passion for, um, uh, for models. Yes, yeah. Uh, the notion that top pop stars must not smoke. That's right. This gives, yeah. gives the wrong message. Uh, and, and in the United, well, a lot of other things, though. United States, <laughs> and, and Tocqueville wrote about us, uh, the criterion of newness uh, is, is is so important to us. Yeah. My new Lexus has a heating yeah. steering wheel. What does yours have? <laughs> this is this is this is very important to us. And the idea that, uh, to use a phrase which has really gone out of fashion, making a life mm-hmm. obedient to things that you think are right, making yourself an artifact of your own conscious superintendence as you go along. Uh, we live in a world which is very hostile to that. And, you know, I, I can't help thinking about this. I mean, we, we live in the United States. Uh, the most important thing in most Americans, what would you say right now, pro football? Well, not us, but I, I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe not, maybe not you. <laughs> most Americans are um, con- concerned about things like Walmart and, uh, and pro football. I mean, what we are talking about has no purchase on the sensibility of the way we Raise, raise our children. I wasn't kidding when I said that uh, three people instantly raised their hands in my seminar and said they wanted to run a hedge fund. Yeah. Or that's uh, fairly sick, isn't it? Yeah, but general people are concerned in America when the price of gas goes up, they, they, or, or things yeah. that are linked to the outside. Yeah, but I find some of that uh, concern, frankly, uh, factitious, a little bit uh, forced. Uh, it is, it is not the drive to convenience, that is the great yes. thing. Technology yeah. keeps advancing because it makes things more Easier. convenient. Yeah. And one of the results of that is a decline of certain virtues. You yeah. don't have to be punctual now because you can use your mobile yeah. phone and warn somebody. You're yeah. coming and, up and a bit later. And convenience, I think, yeah. and virtue are interesting. And I want to say something just very quickly, and it sounds hopelessly romantic, but in the States, there still is a Wyoming. Mm-hmm. There's still yes. a Nebraska. There's still some normal people out there. West. <laughs> well, not not too far west. Right, right, right. It's <laughs> south of Idaho. It's south of Idaho. Idaho, yes. That's right. And, the uh, panhandle. After that, you're in Washington and you're in trouble. Uh, and, Andre. I've got a question for, uh, for Roger, which um, rather... Um, uh, echoes that one that John asked um, and David answered about what what day did uh, Petain turn into a traitor and that is that you quoted positively um, about what um, he was saying what Badgett was saying about slavery uh, the way it um, and it built the pyramids and built the Parthenon at least partly built the Parthenon and so you know from it to move from your quote, invaluable, sorry, um, Mr. Um, Badgett's quote, invaluable to deadly. Yes. Obviously, by 1861, mm-hmm. uh, it had become deadly. At what point does slavery move from being invaluable to deadly? Mm-hmm. Uh, Eight o'clock. <laughs> 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 uh, 
I'm not sure one could put a uh, uh, maybe somebody whose history is better than mine might be able to. And would you put say, it, the, say it so precisely? Uh, Christianity. I mean, uh, Christianity certainly had a big deal to do with it, yeah. but it, I think it was also it was not just a, a spiritual advance. I think it was also the material advance of of, of society. I mean, um, it, it at some point in the West anyway, it became economically uh, dispensable. Well, they still picked the cotton, though, didn't they? Sorry? They picked the well, cotton. Yeah, but it, let's say in Europe, it became, when it became uh, dispensable, it became morally abhorrent. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, you know... But would it have been abolished without Christianity? Um, difficult to say, certainly. I mean, it hasn't really, of course, it hasn't been abolished. There's plenty of places with well, slavery in the world. But, in the but nothing, no place... Here's another word we don't use anymore. Christendom. Mm. It's... it's it, uh, uh, no, I think um, uh, Christianity certainly is, I think, is a spiritual force that helped uh, uh, render slavery um, yeah. obnoxious. The author of the Servile State yes. um, says Christianity abolished slavery, and I think what he meant is that um, as Europe moved into the Middle Ages, the mm. slaves <laughs> moved out, there weren't any slaves. So, no. you know, it may be partly the Black Death and the mm-hmm. economic <laughs> effects, but right. there's all, it's also a part of it being a free society. Mm-hmm. We've got Keith and then Deepak. Keith. Yeah, well, I was going to, my comment was on the uh, slavery question too. I just don't think that's the way history works, um, that you need slavery to create a surplus failure. It's just kind of Marxist stuff, you know. Um, it's, it was when people got rid of slavery they got prosperous. And, and, and the country that best demonstrates that is England itself, because mm. England didn't have slavery, uh, I don't know, they, it was a, legally abolished some in the 14th century or whatever mm. it is. I don't think anyone even knows uh, precisely. Uh, even earlier. Okay, yeah. Um, and it was only because slavery was gone that you had prosperous societies. And in the 18th century, everyone in Europe knew that the two countries that were the, the richest, most going ahead, and everyone wanted to uh, uh, emulate them, was England and Holland. Yeah. Uh, because, because they had, like, um, the historical process is is freedom leads to prosperity, not prosperity leads to freedom. There is a slight problem with that. Britain was the largest slave trader in the world yeah. in the 18th century. They were not mainstream characters. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Not people look down on I just think you want to be careful about that. I think Badger would say, he would say, oh, 14th century, and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about ancient times. And uh, I mean, Athens was staggeringly prosperous. It was also uh, a slave state. Uh, you know, as uh, Andrew points out, I mean, they, you know, uh, and if you read Aristotle or Plato, they just, it's so part of everyday life, it's just assumed. That, that, that slaves are just part of the, this is part of the natural order of things. I mean, it's coerced labor goes on to the late 19th century in the form of serfdom or indentured labor across much of the world. And again, what's interesting is non-coerced labor only becomes the norm across much of the world from the late 19th century. From that point of view, Britain is early. Yes. Uh, so it's uh, well, I do not put a damper on all this, but in a paper we recently produced, beautiful chap called Robert Gordon, Northwestern. And he's been interested for a long time in technical progress, which after all is really what keeps things going. And he's looked at the history of this the last, look, he goes back to the Middle Ages. And he had this huge burst in the 18th century. And he shows these things. That actually is fructified in these years, which everyone thinks were as dog years. This is the 30s, 40s, and the 50s. And then he says, this, if you just take chart this, 
each subsequent bus has not really been very good, including the dot-com bus. Very short period, and he said the diminishing returns, and really we might have been lucky, human engineering, etc. And that mean China and India were keen, right? Because they're, they're still catching up. We're not talking of the frontier, what graduates is looking at. The country out at the top. So you might have freedom, but there are certain things. You might reach a diminishing returns. Might have reached diminishing returns yeah. on engineering. Yeah. So he says that uh, whatever you might think of Apple, whatever you might think of this, the thing that really changed people's lives was sanitation, electricity, and the motor car. Yeah. A final point by Daniel. Oh, I just wanted to say, footnote, it was St. Ansel, Archbishop of Canterbury, in the very beginning of the 11th century, who laid down that no man in England or woman could, could be a slave. Uh, you know, this would have no legal force, you know, any employer who tried to enforce it, and that has held true. So on the territory of this country, there have been no slaves since then. Um, but uh, the, um, I, I was going to uh, just, just uh, add, add one final point, but it's gone out of my head now. Young Queen Victoria said to her Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne, we have to free um, the poor from the poverty of, uh, that they live in, and they are slaves to their condition. Lord Melbourne said, no, I don't know about that, ma'am. Look at the pages. They can't read all right. They seem to have done reading Mr. Zandler's Planet the other day. There's a wonderful phrase at the very beginning of that when he, uh, he talks about his, his main character, we're talking 19 sort of 60s, 70s, and he says, when, I, when he was a young man, he never saw the inside of a kitchen. He never had to do any of that sort of work. That was women's work. You know, there were always maids and, uh, and so on to do that kind of thing. Now he had to do it all for himself. So you know, there has been a sort of shift, has there not, in the course of the last century, where men, uh, men now have to do their own, you know, cooking and cleaning and, and that really? kind of thing. Um, uh, is that not so? Um, I mean, that's been so, No, I think I think almost you entirely. That slavery. Isn't it the case, though, that we have, over the last uh, you know, 30 or 40 years, become incredibly uh, richer than we were before? I remember when I... Yeah, it's not bad. It's really, it's, it's progress on the rate of growth. I mean, you're not yeah. going to have or anything like that. And a lot of the other parts of the world have still got to catch up in the U.S. Right. They've got yeah. huge growth today. But the U.S., which is essentially the frontier of whatever this progress which has taken place. Yeah. Now, the question is, is this unending? Well, you know, nineteen too bad. All the years. Right. The progress will last. Well, unending is a long time. Well, but, 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 on the occasion of the new Criterion's twenty-fifth uh, anniversary, I sort of, I went back uh, and uh, looked at various things that were happening in nineteen eighty-two when it when it started. Now, I, I don't want you to answer this because you probably know the answers. But anybody have a guess of what the stock market was in nineteen eighty-two? Uh. <laughs> Just to stab it. John, you, since you asked the question, you get to answer this one. What do you think uh, the stock market was in 1982? <coughs> the, the American stock market, yeah. 
700. Yeah. Really. Mm. You know. So I mean, it's just the accumulation of wealth. You know, it's just been staggering. Well, somebody who Keith, Keith introduced me to it, uh, the philosopher David Stowe, uh, whom I'm a very, very big fan. Uh, you know, he's he he's. Um, uh, he was very gloomy. He talked. You know, he, he pointed out exactly the, the, the gasoline engines. These were tr- you know, in, electricity, in, incredibly important. So, but uh, have we gotten to the end of that? And you know, um, well, maybe he's right. In a sense, you see, people now keep talking about the genetics, what is it, what is the genome, and all this. Stuff. Right. But the trouble with each, any of these things is the cost of actually getting these fixes. Right. I mean, okay, you add, you know, you save people with dementia. Fine. That's quite good, but the costs of all these interventions are rising astronomically. Right. Every new drug now, the cost of developing drugs is rising. So everywhere, everywhere you look, they're diminishing the return. I even I get a nice, you know, iPad, little quickly. Nothing like those life-changing, very long-lasting inventions. We still, you know, couldn't do, couldn't do without. Anyway, thanks. Thanks to everyone. Um, That concludes the formal business. (laughs) Great, thanks. Uh, Tonight.